I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and find Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 12, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. The title of this morning's message is Working Out What God Is Working In. Working Out What God Is Working In. The letter to the Philippians, of course, came after Paul had visited there and planted a church in Philippi. Those of you who are Bible scholars will remember from the book of Acts that as the Apostle Paul traveled on his second missionary journey, that he traveled from east to west across that area that is today called Turkey, Asia Minor. He traveled from east to west, and in the course of that journey, tried to make a left-hand turn to go down to the province of Asia where the city of Ephesus was located. The Bible tells us that in his heart, in his spirit, that God communicated with him not to do that. So he tries to make a right turn, and he tries to go northwest into Mysia, Bithynia. And again, the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord Jesus forbade him from turning right. And so he keeps going straight. And as he heads west, he comes to where the land runs out. There's nothing left but water and the town of Troas, and he goes to bed. That night, he has a dream. And it's a dream of of a man from Europe, from Macedonia, who says, come over and help us. Gets up the next morning, and he says in God's word that he reaches a conclusion that God is calling him to go to Europe. So he gets on a boat, he sails across the, the water, it's not too far of a journey, he lands at a place called Neapolis, and then he walks to Philippi. And on the day that normally Jews would worship together, if there was no, if there was no established synagogue, there would be a place of prayer, and they went to that place of prayer by the river. And there, there were a few women gathered. One of them was a woman named Lydia. She was a businesswoman. And in the process of their meeting, she came to know Christ as her Lord and Savior. And that was the first convert in Europe. That was the beginning of the church at Philippi. Now, after several days and weeks of preaching in Philippi, there was a slave girl who, was, who had a demon. And she would tell people's future, and people made money off of her because she had this spirit of divination, and she could give direction to people because of this demonic spirit inside of her. This girl began following Paul around and hollering out. It wasn't untrue, but it was very annoying. Began hollering out, these these men are slaves of the Most High. You need to listen to them. Well, that doesn't seem bad, except he probably couldn't speak or preach or do anything else because this girl kept yelling. So at one point, the Bible says, he turns to her, and he he speaks, and he casts the demon out of her. And suddenly, this girl who was uh, making all kinds of money is no longer profitable, and the men who were using her complained to the authorities and said, these Jews have come here and made trouble. And without asking Paul anything, he took Paul and Silas, and they beat him with rods, and they threw him in prison, 
And the next significant thing that took place is that at midnight, they were singing. They've been beaten with rods. They're cut and bleeding. They've been rejected, and they're in prison unjustly. And they're singing, the Bible says, at midnight. And an earthquake comes. And the earthquake opens up all the cells. And the jailer, who was charged with the responsibility of keeping those men confined, was scared to death, and he runs in, and Paul says, it's okay, everybody's here. In the course of that conversation, that man came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior also. And so it was in the context of those events that the church at Philippi was born, and then later he writes this letter. It's a letter of joy. It's a letter of commendation. never says anything critical to the people in Philippi. Very first church in Europe, and, and in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that is the context for what we read. Therefore, my beloved, as you have much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In ministry, I was talking to one of the brothers here just a moment ago, and he used to be in the service, and we were talking about how much people move in different occupations. And so I grew up in the military, and we moved around a lot. Seven different elementary schools, two different high schools. It's amazing I learned anything. I did learn how to make friends when you move around, and so we did that. And then in ministry, you move around, uh, typically. Not always, but often you move in ministry, and and um, not as much as coaches, Van. I think coaches move more than preachers. But, uh, but you do move around a lot in ministry. And, and one of the things that's always been remarkable to me is how the apostle Paul could go someplace and stay for a year, stay for 18 months, stay for two years, and form intense relationships with a relatively small group of people, probably, and form these intense relationships with them, and then leave. He's, he's, he's taken these people where they were in total spiritual darkness, he's taught them, and they come to a place where they're now in spiritual light, and then he leaves. And the, the, the shepherd part of Paul, I'm sure, felt intense concern for their well-being, and of course you read that in his letters, don't you? He, he, he can't handle it anymore. He sends somebody to go check on them. He, he asks how they're doing, and he, he finds out what's going on in their life. Tell me, how's their faith? Are they still trusting God? How's their love? Are they still loving one another? How's their hope? Are they still motivated, waiting on Christ's return and living their life with reference to the fact that there's a judgment day? How, how are they doing with faith, hope, love? How are they doing? And the question in my mind is, how could he leave? In the first, Acts 20, he says to them, I don't have a choice. He says, I'm bound in my spirit. The spirit says to me, you have to go here. You have to do this. And then he says to them, you won't see my face anymore. What's really interesting is that Luke puts that in the text, that he told them that, that, that they wouldn't see his face anymore. And it says at the end of the story in Acts 20, that they're weeping and they're falling on his neck and they're crying and that sort of thing. Because he said... Not all the other things he said. I mean, it's a lengthy talk. He says a bunch of things to them, but the part that caused them to break was when they said, he said, I, you won't see my face anymore, and they just broke. And so you know that the relationships between Paul and these dear ones was intense. He loved them. He cared for them. They were 
more than friends. They were family, eternal family. He loved them and cared for them. And, and church, I love you. And so how can he do that? How can he, how can he pick up and go? Because of what he says in this verse. It's not that he merely trusts them to keep walking with God. It's that he trusts the God who is in them. He trusts the Lord who lives in them to take care of them, to speak to them, to empower them, to keep them. When I was a young Christian, this passage was particularly important to me because, you know, as a, when you first become a Christian, maybe you discovered this, it's really not difficult to conform to the other Christians, to kind of fit in. You just pay attention to what everybody else is doing, and you do that. If everybody wears a coat and tie, you should wear a coat and tie. That's what you think. If everybody goes to Bible study, Sunday school, you should go to Sunday school. And it's pretty easy to kind of fit in and conform and just sort of do what other Christians do and show up and be there and participate. And all those things are good. But listen, there's more. There's much more than that. You can't stop there. What I learned was that there's much more to the Christian life than what you wear and the disciplines that you keep. That life as a Christian is about someone who is living inside of you. That your Savior is not out there, He's right here. And He is there to give to you and supply to you everything you need to live for Him. That's how Paul could leave them. Not because he had particular great faith in humanity, but he had great faith in Jesus who lived in them. And so this morning I want to pick up that phrase to work out your own salvation. What does that mean? I thought that Jesus was the one who saves. What, what is this working out of salvation? What, is that, what does that mean? God is at work in us but there's clearly, according to this passage, something, a work that we are to do where this work that God is doing in us has to be worked out. It has to affect all of our life. The way we think, the way we talk, every thought is to be brought into captivity. We are to be changed, transformed by this work of the present God inside of us. So what does it mean to work out your own salvation? I, I want to point out four things. Number one. First, it means to carry out my mission in this life. He says to work out your own salvation. God hasn't called you to work out anybody else's salvation. He hasn't even called you to work out your brother, or your sister's, or your kid's salvation. He hasn't asked you to work out your spouse's salvation. Hallelujah. He's caused you to work out your own salvation. That's what he said wants you to do just that. And so it points to a responsibility that you have if you're a Christian. And no one else has that responsibility. It's your responsibility alone. And the great wisdom that you can acquire as a Christian is learning to discern the difference between what I am responsible for and what God is responsible for. What God says he will do and what instead I am to do. There's, there's two parts to this equation. It's not just let go and let God. I, it, there's a part that God does, yes, and it's, and it's the most important part. It's the part we can't do anything else without. But I have a part. I have a responsibility, and Christian growth is largely learning 
to know the difference. So what is my part? Well, as this passage opens up in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there it is, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Always obeyed. Obeyed who? Well, at first glance, it would seem he's talking about Paul. You've always obeyed me. That's not what he's saying. You've always obeyed, and if I was going to put it in parentheses, Christ. Just as you've always obeyed Christ, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He's talking about Jesus. It's Jesus who died for us that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. He's the one we obey, not a preacher. You're not good just because a preacher shows up. I remember growing up in the military, um, they would have squadron parties. I don't know if you've ever, would ever have been to one of those. I hope you haven't. A really good one anyway. And so the chaplains would visit the early part of those parties. He would make what's called a chaplain's visit. And then the chaplain would leave and the party would really get started. You see, they were good as long as the chap was there. But when the chaplain left, then they just sort of did what they wanted to do. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, you're obeying Christ, not just when I'm around. But I want you to obey him when I'm not around. And you've always done it, he says to the people in Philippi. Now this word obeyed means, literally, it means to listen, to listen under somebody else, to be subordinate, to listen under somebody else. That's the essence of the word obey. It's got the idea of listening and the idea of being under somebody else. And so that right away shows two parts there. If I'm listening, it's because somebody's giving me direction. Someone's giving me orders. Someone else is in charge. And I'm under their authority. And so there's God's part, which is to direct me, and then there's my part to listen under that direction, to be obedient. So he says to do this, not only when I'm there, but you've also done it much more in my absence. And so that implies something right away. That Paul wasn't the one giving the direction. If they were obedient to Christ, not just when Paul's there, because when he's there he could tell them stuff, right? But he's not there. And they can be obedient. Much more. Even much more. He says, now that I'm absent. How is that possible? mediated contact, communion, communication with Jesus yourself. You and him and nobody else. Much more in my absence, he says. You've obeyed Christ. You have followed him. And so he says, work out your own salvation. The only other thing I would add is that it points to your responsibility. There's a part that you do. But it's also that you have a specific assignment. Work out your own salvation. God is doing something with you. God wants to accomplish some things. His goal is not just to make you good. He wants to use you. He wants to accomplish His work in the world today through your life. And so when He says work out your own salvation, it implies and makes very clear that you have a specific kind of salvation that God wants to work out through your life. To accomplish in you. So to work out your own salvation means to carry out my mission in this life. Unique to you, unique to me, 
And Paul's saying that to these people in Philippi. Second thing, to work out my own salvation means to follow Jesus in every moment. Work out your own salvation. That's a full-time activity. That's a full-time job. It's not something that happened when I walked the Nile and joined the church. That may be what it was called for at that moment. But it is more than that. Work out your own salvation. And, and I need to stress this. Work out does not mean that salvation is earned. We know that salvation is not earned. In 1 Peter, he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the basis of salvation. That Christ died for my sins. That when I put my trust in Jesus, my sins can be carried away and washed away. So salvation experienced. It's something that God is doing in you and through you. And so he says, work out your salvation. There's an experience associated with being saved and walking with Christ. This is a command when he says work out your own salvation. It's not an option. It's not something I can say I'll do or not do. It's a command. It's, it's a directive. And it's present tense. So it's something to be happening all the time. Be working out your salvation all the time. Now I want to point out something that, that uh, you probably, some of you already know, but some of you may not. That salvation occurs in your life at three different times. It occurs in the past, it occurs in the future, and it occurs in the present. And when you're reading Scripture, it's important not to get those mixed up. Let me give you some examples. He rescues us in the future. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, His blood makes me just as if I hadn't sinned, it cleanses me, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The wrath of God's coming. Judgment day is coming. Will I be saved at that moment? I will, but I will be saved then, not now from that moment. There's a future tense to it. His wrath is coming. We shall be saved from wrath through him. That's the future sense of salvation. There's a part of it that has not yet happened yet, but it's coming. Now there's also a past tense. He rescues us in the past, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. This is past. When I trusted Jesus Christ in the fall of my senior year of high school, that was a long time ago. It was in the past, and it was completed in the past. It was done. It is a finished work. It can never be undone. You have been saved. I don't, it's describing something completed in the past, absolutely finished in the past, can never be undone. It is a completed work, and those consequences of that finished work continue to abide into the present time. So when you trust Christ, you are saved. And you can look back to that moment five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, however long it was, it is in the past, it is done. And then there's a word for salvation, a way of talking about salvation that applies to it in the present tense. An example is 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing right now, but to us who are being saved right now, 
it is the power of God. And so there's a sense in which God is saving me in every moment of every day of your life, in my life, present tense. And so all three matter, and sometimes people argue about, are you once saved, always saved, or you know, all these different kinds of things. Sometimes they, they got these verses all jumbled up. You just have to read it and ask yourself, is he talking about salvation in the past, in the future, or in the present? The point is, salvation right now, the only part of salvation that you can cooperate with is in this moment. What is God doing in your life right now? And what Paul's saying in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, is that God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So if you're the kind of person that says, well, I was saved years ago, and I know that's the past, and I know that when I die, I'll go to heaven, that's the future, and you don't worry about anything else in between, you are not experiencing salvation the way God intends it. He intends that you enjoy and experience his salvation every single day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Number three, to work out your salvation also means to be consumed with the personal attention of trembling. I want you to think about that. Does anything in your life cause you to fear and tremble? It suggests that something should disturb me. Something in this relationship with God should affect me. I'm being in this relationship with someone, and as a consequence of being in this relationship with God, who lives in me, there should be fear and trembling. This phrase, fear and trembling, actually comes from the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, verse 1, the Bible says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist in Psalm 2 at that point is describing a certain kind of attitude towards God. There are mighty men and women on this planet who think that they are in control, that they're in charge, that I'm not accountable to God, I don't have to listen to Him. I can do what I want to do with my life. I have no one to be accountable to, no king to be subject to. I'm the master of my own kingdom, even if it's just me. And that's the attitude in Psalm 2. Now, how does God react to people who have that mindset about their life, that I don't have to listen to God, I don't have to listen to anybody? How does he respond? Verse 4 of Psalm 2 says, He sits, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Do you think God's disturbed by people with a bad attitude? Him, I don't have to be subject, I can do what I want to do with my life. Do you, do you think God's disturbed about that? It says he laughs. Now, in contrast to that first group of people, listen at the end of the psalm, what he writes, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
And that's where that phrase comes from. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Comes from Psalm 2. Nowhere else in the Bible does it appear like that. That means two things to me. If my idea of God doesn't cause me to tremble, I do not yet have an accurate view of God. If my vision of God and who He is does not cause me to move with great care in my life, make decisions with reference to Him, conduct myself in a way recognizing who He is and who He is in me, if that doesn't cause me to pause, if that doesn't cause me to think about what I'm saying and what I'm doing, my view of God is not accurate. It also causes me to think that I am being saved by a king. The king of the universe. He is not my assistant. He is not my nursemaid. He is not a servant to my interests and my wants. He is a king. He's over all the earth, over all the universe, over all creation. He has infinite wisdom. He has infinite power. And this God lives in me as a Christian. Oh God, I need some help today. I'm having a bad day. I just need a little help. A little pick-me-up, please. And I don't believe, by the way, that it's wrong to pray for encouragement from the Lord. I don't have any problem with that. I do that a lot. But I'm suggesting to you he is much more than just someone who helps me. I exist to please him. He does not exist just to please me. And so to to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is to be consumed with the personal attention of my king. He is in me. He is with me. He is watching me. He is never away from me. I am never abandoned by him, but he is a king. Number four, last thing. To work out my salvation with fear and trembling means to look for God's activity in me. To look for God's activity in me. He says, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is not in some far distant corner of the universe as a passive observer to your life. He is present inside every Christian. If you do not have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, by definition, you are not a Christian. And so he is not passive way out there. He says he works in you, so he is present inside your soul. So what does that mean? Two or three things. First, and this is probably the most precious thing to me, it means I am never alone. Never. Never alone. You can be the most distant, isolated, off-the-grid place on the planet, and you are not alone. You may be facing the worst circumstances of your life today. You are not alone. You may be feeling like you are alone. You are not alone. He is with you. 
written by a Baptist professor in the 19th century, so over 100 years ago, Augustus H. Strong, A.H. Strong. And this is what he says, talking about the fact that God lives inside of us and that there is a union between the Spirit of God and your human spirit. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We talked about that over a year ago when we, we studied what it means to abide in Christ. He dwells in us. He lives in us, and we live in Christ. He is your environment, both internally and externally. The professor writes, this union is a vital one. Christ does not work upon us from without as one separated from us, but from within as the very heart from which the lifeblood of our spirit flows. We may be unconscious of this union with Christ, as we often are of the circulation of blood. I mean, most of the time you don't think about the fact, oh, my blood's flowing through my body. We don't think about that, unless you get a cut. Christ and the believer have the same life. They are not separate persons linked by some temporary bond of friendship. They are united by a tie as close and indissoluble as if the same blood ran in their veins. Augustus H. Strong wrote that in 1880. I am never alone if I know Christ. Secondly, I am never apart from his guidance. For it is God who works in you both to will, that's the first part of it, and to do. I want to focus on those words, to will. It's God that works in you to will. That means that that word will is referring to your desire, your choices, your want-tos. And God is at work to change your desire, your will. He wants to mold it, wants to shape it so that your heart beats with his heart so that your desire aligns with his desires. And so God is at work in you both to will and to do his his good pleasure. He wants to shape that desire. What does that mean? That means one of the ways God leads you, one of the ways God guides you, is when you're walking with him, seeking him, and with a heart that desires to please him, one of the ways you can get a sense of what God is doing is by looking inside your heart and asking the question, what is it that I want to do? I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who are struggling to know the will of God. And I've asked the question, if you could do whatever you wanted to do for God, what would you do? They never thought about that. They think, if I want to do it, well, God must not want it. He must not be in it. Because I want it, it must be wrong. And yet this verse says the exact opposite of that. If you're walking with him, you're not obstinate of heart. You just want to please him. You want to love him. You want to serve him. What does God say? God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. One of the things he does is he shapes your desires. What is it that you want to do in the absence of any other leading, in the absence of any direction, of any other guidance? What is it that you simply want to do for God? And why wouldn't you do that? So I'm never apart from his guidance. And how much leading does he want to give to your life? I believe he wants to lead 
every aspect of your life. This is present tense stuff, meaning it's happening all the time. God's will for your life is more than where you're going to go to school. It's more than who you're going to marry. It's more than whether you move or stay. It's about today. The will of God is about today. It's about this hour. It's about this minute. He lives in you. Thirdly, this idea of looking for God's activity in me, that he works in me, means I am empowered, thirdly, to do everything God leads me to do. I am empowered to do everything God leads me to do. I am empowered to do everything God leads me to do. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, what's really fascinating about this is when it says that it's God that works in you. It uses a particular Greek word. In fact, we get the word energy from it. It's, it's like energize. It's God who's energizing. It's God who's working. And he's doing it in you. And he says he's, he's energizing, working in you, yes, to shape your desires, to will and then to do. And the word to do, wait, God is energizing. He's working in you both to desire and to energize. So that you have the same energy to do whatever it is he's energizing you to do. It'd be pretty confusing if it was literal. Literally translated, but that's what it says. The very same thing that God is doing, he's working a certain kind of energy in you, a certain kind of power in you, and that power is the very power you're to draw on to do his will. I have an electric razor. And I found out as I get older, they don't work as well. I don't know, Dan, if they just get tougher or what. I know they get wider, don't they? You know, some of y'all think I look young. If you saw my beard, you wouldn't think that. And, um, and so if I take this electric razor, and I think, okay, I got to shave this morning, get ready for church. And if I just took this and I just started rubbing it real hard on my skin, just like, just like that, just rubbing it real hard on my skin. I know what I need to do. I know what the will is, I know, and I have a desire to do it, and I just try to do it really hard and just try to shave it on there. Man, if I came to church after just pushing on my face real hard, pushing on it with this thing, it wouldn't be pretty. And I, you, wouldn't have, you, would, you would still see the stubble. It wouldn't work, but if I turned it on, and I start working it. Well, suddenly I realize that inside of this thing, there is a power supply. There is a, a charged up battery. There's a power source. And, and I may know what it's supposed to do and try to make it work without that power source, but I would be wasting my time. And too many believers are wasting their time. And too many churches are wasting their time trying to do God's work without God's power. He wants to supply you with the power and your desire. He wants to supply you also with the very strength to do what it is he's calling you to do. They're not separate. They go together. And I know that some of you right now feel like I can't do anything more. I am completely depleted. 
I can't take another step. I can't do anything else. And some, sometimes we, we think that God wants us to do things, and he's not supplied us with the power to do them, but we still hang under that, that set of expectations. And uh, without going too deep, it can cause us to feel frustrated and helpless and futile. And, you know, sometimes you can sit down with a, a wise, older Christian brother or sister or pastor or Sunday school teacher, and they can help you because I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a brother or sister, and they are operating under a load of expectations from God that are not from God. The Lord has a will for your life. He does. And when he makes that clear to you, he supplies what you need to carry out that plan and that purpose and that, take that step. He does. But if one or the other is messed up, you're going to be frustrated. Sometimes we run off and we try to do things for God, and he's never told us to do those things, and we burn out and we get tired. But it was never his will in the first place. Sometimes it's not what we're doing. Sometimes it's how we're doing it. We're trying to do it in our own strength. Or we're trying to do too much. And we're violating our life in other areas. Violating his purpose in other areas. But there's, that's where there's value in seeking out a Christian brother or sister to give godly counsel. Nevertheless... I'm never apart from his guidance. I am empowered to do everything. The last thing I would observe from this, when it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, is in him joy. He gives you the desire and the ability to do his will. He gives all that to you to do his pleasure, not yours. And so that's just a side observation. All of this discussion is about fulfilling the pleasure of God, doing what pleases Him, not what pleases me. But what's really remarkable about, about this is that means, just stay with me, that means that you and I have the capacity to bring pleasure to God. This way of life that we're talking about, I actually can please Him. When I trust him, when I sense what he wants me to do, and I do it in his strength that he supplies, and with the resources he supplies, that pleases God. Now, I mention that because some of you walk under a cloud and you feel like God is never happy with you. That he's always somehow against you. And dear one, that may have more to do with your upbringing or your view of God, but something's broken there. But, but go to this text. The text says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, I respect him. He's the king. He is infinitely powerful and beautiful and caring. He's infinite love. He's all of those things. And so there should be reverence. There should be fear and trembling and awe and respect. But the end result of this process is he works in me these desires, and then I do it with his strength. Oh, God. I'm going to do your will with whatever you supply to me to do it. And I do these things. But then there is this moment when I realize at the end of the journey that it was all to please him, to bring pleasure to him. I think it's the very last verse of Psalm 16. 
that says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's not only something we get to experience in heaven, that's something you and I get to experience now. Do you experience the pleasure of God on your life? Do you ever sense that God is pleased with that step you took, that step of faith? Do you ever sense that God is pleased when you sense you should pick up the phone and call someone and, and you did it? Do you ever sense that God is pleased when you're preparing for a Sunday school lesson or you're preparing to, to do some act of service for the Lord and you wait on Him before you start? You just say, oh God, would you guide me in this process? I want to say what you want me to say. I want to serve in the way you want me to serve. You just sort of wait on Him and you do it believing, trusting that He is giving to you what you need, that you're doing what He wants. Do you ever get, just pause in the midst of all of that and just say, God, did I please you? 